Welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen. As someone who loves to share yoga tools like mindful movement, breath awareness and stillness to help people cultivate rest and resilience in their lives, I'm beyond delighted to share episode 12 of Right Medicine with you. My guest is Donna Gabriel, the Senior Director of Global Education at MedIQ. Donna is currently pursuing a doctorate in mindful leadership in healthcare and is an advocate for mental health in general and reducing clinician burnout in particular. In this episode, Donna talks about why so many clinicians are burned out and exhausted, and she discusses the importance of mindfully designed education that not only supports clinician well-being, but also boosts learning. Dive in with me and listen to our conversation. Hello and welcome to Right Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and today we're focusing on mindfulness in clinician education with Donna Gabriel, who is Senior Director of US and Global Education at MedIQ. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Alex. It's great to see you here. Yeah, great to be here. So I like to start our conversations with asking guests just to talk a little bit about who you are and how you found your way into uh, education and education for health professionals in particular. Sure. Actually, I started off my career as an event planner, a meeting planner. I worked for a contact lens company for several years, planning their national sales meetings, advisory boards, things like that uh, for the internal sales team. And then a mutual friend at a continuing medical education company, oncology-focused one here in Atlanta, uh, let me know about an opening to do project management. So to actually organize these continuing medical education conferences, it was they were done all over the world. So it was an opportunity for me to see the world in my 20s, learn a lot more about conferences. And then there was a point in CME where you couldn't just go and ask for funding from someone at a pharma company, the, as we all know, the rules sort of changed and you had to get your funding through formal education grants. And so our company needed someone to manage that process, bring all the pieces together and sort of drive the bus. And they asked if I would take on that role. So I moved from the director of project management into this more educational strategy grant development role. And then that turned into more of a straight business development role, which then led me to MedIQ nine and a half years ago, where I've been ever since. And I should say that you're also pursuing a PhD in mindful leadership in healthcare at Saybrook University. What's your research focus? Uh, So the PhD is in mind-body medicine, specializing in mindful leadership in healthcare. 
and my research interest is on mindfully designed education as a tool to address clinician burnout, clinician well-being. So let's unpack those two <laughs> concepts. Okay. Burnout and well-being. How do you define both of those ideas? Burnout's interesting. I, I'm sure everyone listening to this right now um, has heard the term burnout a lot. And it, it's used to describe many professions, not just clinician burnout. But the reason burnout has such a big focus in the clinician community is because it is such an exponentially higher problem than in other professions. And um, a lot of research has been done over the past decade, even more so probably in the past five years, um, just because this continues to grow and grow and has been labeled an epidemic in recent years. And so a lot of healthcare systems have looked at ways to support clinician wellness, clinician well-being through development of an individual strategies for these clinicians, mental health services, uh, maybe yoga, relaxation techniques, meditation. The problem is now, uh, after a lot of research and, and talking about this for a long time, clinicians really aren't resonating very well with the term burnout. It's not received very well because clinicians are viewing this as an individual, meaning burnout has this label of it's an individual issue, something that the clinicians need to address on their own. If they were more resilient, if they just practice yoga or meditation, if they were stronger, maybe they could um, work this out. And I was reading a paper and there was a great quote by Dr. Simon Talbot, who said clinicians are the most resourceful, resilient people out there. And if they could have, he called it MacGyvered their way out of this situation by now, they would have done it, but that hasn't happened. So my colleagues and I have had a lot of discussions and there's research out there about moving this topic more from burnout, the label to moral injury, which seems to us uh, to be more of a clear description of what is going on uh, with clinicians because moral injury, it was a term that was coined veterans returning from Vietnam and uh, PTSD. And basically it describes the continued situation where clinicians are forced to deal with decisions or actions that go against their moral code or their oath that they took as clinicians. So, and it eventually just, and it's a systemic problem. So it's not an individual problem. So it takes that onus off the clinicians and made, and frames it more as a system level problem. Interesting. So we've been talking about clinicians. One of the things that struck me when you were talking is, as I recall, you know, I, I trained as a nurse, a lot of the early research on burnout was actually conducted within the nursing profession. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I remember strongly when I was practicing as a nurse is you don't talk about when you're feeling stressed. There, there is a code of silence around, you know, any kind of acknowledgement of burnout or any of the steps on the road to burnout. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the mm -hmm. same amongst uh, physicians. But what my question is, given that this research has been around for a while, do you find differences in how different specialties or, or disciplines within healthcare, so medicine, nursing, pharmacy, talk about burnout and their willingness to kind of open up that black box? 
It's a great question, and it's interesting that you brought up nurses because nurses are experiencing unprecedented levels of exhaustion and stress, um, especially right now during COVID because there's an amazing nurse shortage right now, a drain on resources. There's a lot required of nurses at this time. And then especially in physicians too, uh, the challenge based on the research and in discussions that our team has had with physicians is that part of being a physician, there's sort of this badge of honor in your resilience level. Many physicians pride themselves on their ability to handle stress and to handle the pressures of what they're doing. But there's only so much that any human being can manage. But there's this stigma of seeking mental health services or saying that you need help. And then a lot of clinicians, depending on the state requirements, have to report that they've sought mental health services on their licensure applications. So, you know, that's another barrier. Huge disincentive. Exactly. Exactly. If you're talking about COVID too, there's been this well-intentioned proclamation of physicians and nurses, clinicians being heroes. Um, And and while that's all wonderful and good and and meant to be celebratory of these professions, it, it also creates another uh, problem for these clinicians that they can't kind of break that facade, I guess, or they need to appear that they are superhuman or that mm-hmm. they've got this. And it doesn't allow them to be vulnerable and to express the fact that they are also suffering and need help. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering too, thank you for that. Are you seeing gender or differences in ethnicity in the research that you're looking at in terms of burnout among clinicians? It's a great question, and I'm going to be very transparent that I haven't been able to dig deeply into the research on burnout and ethnic or cultural components related to burnout. So that is something um, that I would love to dig into more deeply, but uh, I don't have hard data on that at this time. Um, Female versus male, I'm sure it's no surprise, though, that females are more willing to talk about it and express it than men. And there is data showing that a lot of female clinicians are experiencing burnout at higher levels. One of the factors is women are often the caretakers in the home. And so they're um, often responsible for family responsibilities. Uh, Many, you know, the majority of nurses are female. Uh, So if you correlate that with the high levels of nurse exhaustion and burnout, Uh, that all makes sense as Mm -hmm. well. So there is a big difference between male and female, though I believe that women just express it more. I don't know if they're experiencing it more. I don't have data either way um, to show that it's only because they're maybe able to express that more than men. That's an interesting distinction. And what about, um, I know we're kind of sticking with, you know, clinicians and burnout, differences in different medical specialties. Um, Last year in 2020, at the um, annual meeting, for instance, of the American College of Cardiology, which of course was online like everything else. I can't remember the clinician's name and I'll, I'll make sure to pull it out and link it in the show notes. 
But there's a couple of cardiologists who've been working on burnout within the specialty of cardiology. And mm-hmm. I was struck when you were talking about moving away from this idea of burnout as an individual problem, because mm-hmm. that was one of the things that she was arguing that, you know, we have to see burnout in cardiology as, as a, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very widespread issue. Uh, a couple of rounds right. of, you know, downward dog and uh, so on right. aren't really going to cut it. So mm-hmm. I'll make sure to to link to that. Well, it's, it's exactly right. If you are meditating or doing yoga, but then you go do your job and the system that you're working for, the organization that you're that you're working for, just has no mechanism to support anything you're doing and support your well being or nurture your well being. I mean, there's not enough yoga and meditation in the world for you to overcome that. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though those are great practices, I love them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just have to be realistic. And a lot of these healthcare systems, these leaders, they, I do want to mention that in the research that I've done and, and discussions I've had, healthcare organization leaders do see that. Mm -hmm. They understand that, but there's this, they don't quite know how to address it in a holistic way because they want to support these, you know, most, I I can't speak for all of them, but many organizations want to support their um, clinicians, but they also have these competing demands that they have to address. Or there's a lack of understanding of what engagement or well-being means to them and what it means to these um, clinicians, which is another issue. So it's important moving forward that we look at ways that we can provide these healthcare organizations with frameworks and tools and, you know, just resources that they need to bridge this gap in collaboration with their clinicians. Oh, that's really interesting because because I think some healthcare organizations do use a version of the burnout inventory to kind of track employee satisfaction and engagement and those mm. kind of things, don't they? I, I was talking to a group of uh, oncologists, uh, oncology clinicians, um, actually three focus groups just before the end of 2020. And mm. actually one of the focus group participants was a psychologist within a healthcare system. And he was saying that, you know, they've been trying to provide buddy systems and those kinds of things to support not just oncologists, actually, uh, all their their staff throughout the health system. But he was saying, like, take-ups really slow and take-ups really low. Um, And so there's this kind of puzzle about, as you're saying, what do we, what do we do to support clinicians? So, so that's the question then, what, what do we do? Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that are outside of my realm in education that are being done. If anyone is interested in looking at more systemic stuff, uh, T.D. Schoenefeldt, he's well-known in um, mindfulness. He's at Stanford now, but he was at the Mayo Clinic. And um, there's a lot of articles and research he published about doing a lot of uh, mindful engagement at the Mayo Clinic. And there's these frameworks and um, they're just uh, really interesting and beautifully done and have seen great results. I know they're being looked at in many other organizations and employed in other organizations, but obviously there's a lot more work to be done. But in our space, in education, I started to look at what we were doing, my organization and as industry as a whole, and what were we doing to either make this problem worse or not make it better Mm -hmm. and what we could do, what was our role 
here moving forward because we do have a role. Uh, we have a role in perpetuating the problem and we have a role in making it better. And is your, because I know that you touched on COVID, did your focus on on mindfulness um, predate COVID or? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I entered my PhD. Well, I've always, I've practiced mindfulness for many, many years. Um, I've always had an interest in mind body medicine as a health coach um, and in my master's. But the deep research in mindfulness started in 2018 when I entered um, Saybrook and really dug deep into this topic. Uh, so COVID was just an interesting, <laughs> an interesting addition to it. But I have to say, as horrible as COVID is and the, the problems that it has brought, I think it has allowed a lot of things to come to the surface that are positive. Mm-hmm. There's a a bigger focus I've seen in looking at mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness is a big topic out there right now. It's it's always sort of been there, but I think it's really come you know to the light more in 2020. And I think that's a great thing. So for better or for worse with COVID, I think it's making us step back and look at things that are uh, important and look at things differently and, and kind of create a new path forward. It's been an accelerator in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. And you did talk, we have, you know, kind of touched on COVID uh, a few times here. 2020 is just going to be known as not 2020, just COVID, isn't it? Yeah, I, uh, it was funny. I was at Chick-fil-A yesterday getting a uh, food for my children and the guy said, okay, that'll be 2020. That was our total. And I said, I'm not paying that. That's something else. I'm not paying that on the bill. It was just so funny. That's good. I like that. We just want to forget 2020. Yeah. This is Alex. I want to thank you for being a Right Medicine listener. And I'd really love to hear what you think about the show. This helps me to continue featuring content that you want to listen to and that serves your work in the continuing healthcare education field. There are different ways to provide insights. Here are two. Rate and review the podcast. You can do this on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser if you're an Android user. And consider subscribing. It's free and you'll receive new episodes as soon as they air. Just click the subscribe button on the podcast platform that you use. Thanks for listening. So what kind of things were you seeing or are you still seeing in your work in relation to the impact of COVID on clinician well-being? That's a great question. I stepped back and looked at education as the whole and then how it translated to continuing medical education and the education we were putting forth and that I was putting out there um, as someone who was responsible for designing education. And I noticed that while in continuing, we call continuing professional development, outcomes methodologies or technologies had changed or some platforms, the basic process of delivering education um, to practicing clinicians has largely remained unchanged as I see it. And the problem there is when you sort of create education in a bubble, Instead of looking at where clinicians are, understanding what they are going through right now, if you try to take a framework that has worked, you know, quote unquote, worked for many years, and then don't look at what is happening now, what these clinicians need, what they are facing, and pivot 
then you're not going to see the practice change, the knowledge change that is expected with continuing medical education. And there's also a lot of research showing that when learners are learning under stress, learning under anxiety, it affects their ability to um, learn, to sustain attention. And there's data out there connecting burnout with clinicians' professional efficacy. So one of the goals of CPD is to improve professional efficacy, help people practice or treat patients more effectively. And I thought, well, if these clinicians are burnt out, how can we expect them to improve their professional efficacy if we don't give them tools, mindfully support their ability to do that? And so those are the conversations I started having and the things I started to look at based on examples in other educational settings, because mindfully designed education in CPD has not been done. I've scoured the research. So if it's been done, I can't find it. I did find two articles. They were both outside the U.S. They were small sample sizes. And so I just, I thought this is something that we need to do because in Other educational settings, early childhood, graduate education, even medical residency training, mindfully designed education is being done and it's working. And so we need to take a pause and look at how we can do it in our space. So much good stuff there. (laughs) A couple of things that I want to unpack just a little bit. One is what you mean when you're talking about mindfully designed education. But before we get to that, you you talked about, you know, looking at where clinicians are in order to kind of meet their needs. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you find most effective to really take that deep dive into where learners are? Because you're not just talking about, you know, a kind of knowledge pretest. You're talking about something else. So what is that something else? Sure. I'll look at it more from a systems-based approach. So say you're doing an educational program where you want to uh, address practice gaps or competency gaps within a specific healthcare system. And say you've noticed these gaps in the treatment of lung cancer, for example, and you're trying to understand exactly what's going on. And and we pull chart data and we do some surveys and um, case questions and knowledge questions. And then we say, oh, well, this is what they're not doing, or this is what they don't know. Let's sort of put these educational interventions together and move the needle. And it works. Uh, It has worked. Uh, MedIQ does these often, and we've seen a lot of positive changes. But one piece that is missing is going a little bit deeper down. We need to, and we've started to do this more to understand, okay, what is not being shown in a patient record or in a knowledge question? We need to dig deeper and say, okay, what is the process in place for this multidisciplinary collaboration? What resources are they lacking? Or maybe which resources do they have that play into this? What are they feeling? What are they dealing with? What about staffing, staff shortages? So there's this just bigger picture here that we need to make sure that we capture to get a a better understanding of what these clinicians need from us at that time to do their jobs in a, I don't want to say do their jobs better, but to be more effective. 
And and so to me, that sounds like there's there's an interesting blurring of boundaries between education and change management. Mm-hmm. We are looking at processes and, and systems and that kind of thing. And come back to me on that, if that's a mischaracterization. Okay. Um, but I, I did want to dig into a little bit what you mean by, so in January, when the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions had its annual virtual meeting, our annual meeting, which was virtual in 2021, you and Alison Gardner presented material on mindfulness and clinician education. And one of the distinctions you made, and you've been uh, kind of, I think this has been implicit in what you've been saying, is between creating content about mindfulness and designing education in a mindful way. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by mindfully designed education in CPD in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2020, we gave a presentation at the Alliance, sort of just dipping our toe into this topic. And we talked about mindfulness. And it was very clear to us that we needed to make this distinction because during the presentation, um, a lot of people kept misunderstanding what we were saying with mindfulness, that we were wanting to teach meditation and yoga and incorporate meditation into CME, which I mean, of course we could do, but that wasn't where we were going. So it was very important to us in January to make it very clear, we're not talking about teaching mindfulness to clinicians. There's many resources out there for that. Mm -hmm. What we are teaching is how we can mindfully design education to support clinician well-being, to meet them where they are, to make them feel seen to make them feel understood and to make them feel supported. So when I say mindfully designed education, when learners, like I said, when they are learning under stress or they're just, you know, hammered with a bunch of data um, and they're already experiencing these levels of burnout or moral injury, it's just not going to be as effective. Data shows that in other educational settings, but when you take moments to, connect emotionally with your learners through uh, reflective moments, through storytelling. Storytelling is a huge benefit to learning. When you make things more community focused, where people can share vulnerabilities, share experiences. Um, It's not the expert talking to the non-experts or the, the expert talking to the inferior person or make education that's fun where it's just a moment to exhale, to breathe out, to just relax. That's what I'm talking about. And you know, it, it's important probably in our discussion here at some point that we clarify what we mean by mindfulness and what, what it means to be mindful. Let's do it now. Just on the larger scale. Okay. <laughs> mindfulness, like I said before, it's a big buzzword out there. People hear it all the time. And, and I think a lot of people assume it's some things that it's not. And so it's important. It was important for us in January. And it's important anytime I talk about it to clarify what I mean. And mindfulness is simply the act of paying attention to what is happening inside you, around you in a non-judgmental way. So in other words, you are aware of what is happening around you or inside you, but you don't get carried away by it. And it's not a religion. So another reason people maybe back away from this when we start to talk about it is they think we're talking about a religion and they sure. get a little 
funny about that, but it's not. It's secular. It is rooted in Buddhism, but it's not Buddhist. Also, <laughs> mindfulness is not. So then you say mindfulness, people think, oh, you're meditating to kind of check out and tune out or go off into this space and meditation. And that's not mm-hmm. the way it is. There's hundreds of forms of meditation. Right. Mindfulness actually enhances your awareness, heightens your present moment awareness. Um, and it can be done through mindfulness meditation, but it can be done when you are driving in your car or, um, you know, you're playing with your children when you're eating a meal uh, and then when you're learning. So simply put mindfulness, that moment that you realize your mind is wandering that is mindfulness because you are aware of what is happening in that moment. So if you translate that to education, if we create moments in education for a learner to recognize that their mind is wandering and all of our minds wander during learning all the time, all the time, the moment that they recognize that and bring their attention back, a change in the brain immediately occurs and your ability to sustain attention is enhanced and then learning is enhanced and on and on. So that's why I'm so <laughs> passionate about creating these moments in education. That's a wonderful uh, definition. My mind wandered yeah. <laughs> because the slight yeah. irony of this conversation is this is our second go around <laughs> um, for listeners, because the first conversation that Donna and I had about mindfulness, I forgot to hit the record button because I was not <laughs> present in the moment and uh, very distracted about a lot of different things go on. But in fact, that's not just uh, an irony, because when you look at, um, I'm just thinking about this joint commission data on patient safety and medical error. I think something like 96% of error is a consequence of miscommunication or distraction. Like distraction is huge in medical error. Yeah. And so I love that definition. And I think think we're going to have to include some little practice at the end or in the show notes or something for people to, to practice mindfulness. Sure. Sure. And it's just interesting you say that the errors because um, we were reading a paper recently about the EHR and the the high use of the EHR and this copy and paste mm. thing. So when you're kind of mindlessly copy and pasting, sometimes they've found that a lot of patient errors have occurred. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And how many times have you written an email or put a document together, um, even grant requests that are templated and you just sort of are going through the motions and then you yes. look back and you realize, oh my gosh, I missed this or that because I wasn't paying attention. It's the going through the motions thing. You go onto autopilot, you think that you, yeah, yeah and your mind's all over the place. Or you uh, drove yes. 20 miles down the road and you don't remember anything. <laughs> I know. That's like a mindless, yeah, yeah. That is definitely the worst. And so... <laughs> Thinking about, and I think you did offer some some strategies at the Alliance presentation, and you've hinted at them here as well, in terms of reducing hierarchical educational formats, fostering community, 
integrating opportunities for two-way exchange and reflective questions that make learners pause. I mean, I kind of feel like I've known MedIQ for a long time. I kind of feel like this is something that MedIQ has actually done for quite a long time, which, which is kind of interesting to me. But you did talk about storytelling. Yeah. So let's focus on that a little bit, because for me, I hear a lot of people talk about storytelling and I'm and I'm a writer so I'm I'm invested in mm-hmm. storytelling and what that means it does also for me kind of point to some of the work of um Paulo Freire the Brazilian mm-hmm. um educator who was very much focused on the power of curiosity yes and storytelling as part of that power to me that feels it's exciting and it's a little mm-hmm. bit radical as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by storytelling and how you see that um, kind of fitting into mindfully designed education in continuing professional development. Sure. Um, storytelling can be used in many different ways. And there is documented research that when content is presented in the form of a narrative that people can emotionally connect to, they remember it more. So it's just, I keep thinking like, uh, I'm going to be kind of maybe a little nerdy for a second, but I watched a documentary on the Bee Gees the other day. Oh my gosh. I, it's so wonderful. Isn't it great I on that HBO? That. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. So I was hooked in from beginning to end. If someone had given me a paper talking about, and then they did this album and then this happened and then they married and then they got divorced I wouldn't have remembered any of it, but the way presenting it as a story, presenting it as a narrative, engaging all of the senses in this delivery of information helps you to soak that information up more. And so an example I gave in education is, um, trust me, I am constantly reading learning materials for better, for worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think about those times when I'm in a textbook or I'm in an article and I'm just reading, reading this data, and I don't even know what is in front of me at a certain point. And then you know those times where there's a pause and then they give you an example of a story or a person or something to connect this data they're giving you or this information to a real life situation or an example of a story. And when that happens is, you're reading this data, there's a pause, there's a movement to a story, and then you connect the material and you say, okay, I get this. Yes. Or you feel something and then you're ready. Your attention is on that moment. Your attention's on that feeling that you feel and your, your ability to kind of learn and continue reading is enhanced. You kind of reset. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm talking about with storytelling. Curiosity is so interesting. Curiosity is an innate human trait, and it's very, very prevalent in clinicians, very prevalent. Many clinicians enter the field of medicine because of their curiosity about the way our bodies function. So, And they're, uh, they're scientists, and they're curious about data and new ways of doing things. And so any moment that you can tap into that curiosity, make clinical breakthroughs exciting. Why does it have to be like, and then this study came out and this study, attach emotion to it. Because think of all the education that's out there. There are so many educational choices for clinicians, but 
just like with any choice that anyone has out in the world, people are going to choose the things that they emotionally connect with or that they find important to them. So if you are someone who's designing education and you want people to choose your education more often or engage in it in a deep manner, make it something that they choose because it makes them feel a certain way. It makes them want to learn more. It makes them curious. You'll start to see a lot of differences in um, what your education can do. So I I am on board with that 100%. Percent, As you know, I, I teach yoga and my goal in, in teaching is experiential. I want people to feel a particular mm-hmm. way, but I'm also conscious that there are going to be listeners and there are probably you know, practitioners in the CME CPD community who, as soon as you start to talk about emotion and feeling a particular way, are going to take a big step to the back of the room. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd be interested in your response to that. And then the other part of that is it raises different questions. If you're talking about emotional engagement and that as part of the the design and the delivery of the content, what are the implications for assessment and evaluation? Right. So let's remove the emotion from it. There might be people listening who say, who just, just can't even go there. They have a certain way of thinking and it's, it's not that okay, let's look at the science. If you just want science, there have been multiple studies in many educational settings and in just clinical settings on mindfulness and practicing mindfulness, showing that physical changes in the brain happen. These are on scans. Um, You can find them in many places. Physical changes happen in the brain when people are being mindful, when they are aware of their present moment, when they are engaging in something in a mindful way, their um, attention is enhanced, stress levels go down, heart rate levels go down, but it's that change in the brain that is responsible for learning and attention. So as educators, if you just want to focus on that little piece, to me, that would be enough to make you kind of look at this more deeply and, you know, for lack of a better term, get curious about it. No, that's that's great. And if people were interested in exploring that a little bit more, do you have recommendations for a good starting read? Well, I have a lot of reads reading on mindfulness, but there's a really great book by Ronald Epstein. He's a physician out of New York, and he has a book called Attending, which is a really great book uh, talking about clinicians, their needs, intrinsic needs, and and approaching patient care in a mindful way. There's Mindfulness and Education is an organization uh, that has a lot of resources for that. Mindfulleader.org is another one for helping people understand how to incorporate mindfulness into their organizations. But there's a lot of research out there, and I can can send you some references to put in the notes too. T.D. Schoenfeld is a great one. Uh, he does a lot of work in this space. Everyone knows John Kevitson. So there's just a lot of resources for that. Um, I also want to mention, if someone wants more of a storytelling, there's uh, a Netflix documentary called The Mindfulness Movement, which is just a really, really great presentation of this. And a lot of clinical information is given in this in a very entertaining 
engaging way. So if people want something like that, that's a great option. And is Barry Gibb featured in that one? I know. I wish. <laughs> he should be the theme song. I know. Oh, I know. my gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't actually seen that documentary and I'm definitely going to check that one out. And Ronald Epstein, uh, some of his work I'm familiar with because he did some of the really early research on the importance of patients and providers liking each other in that patient-provider communication uh, piece. And I know a lot of his research has been used um, by people who've looked at um, disparities in uh, health communication between patients and providers, particularly in relation to racial and ethnic concordance. So mm-hmm. uh, love his work. Mindful of time here, just a couple of questions. If we are thinking about mindfully designing education, does that change how we need to think about uh, evaluating education programs? Or education activities. And it sounds to me as though that, that, that a lot of what we're talking about here is it's not a one-off activity. We're talking about a much more substantive initiative, perhaps with a healthcare system or with a team within mm-hmm. a particular healthcare vertical. Yeah, I mean, uh, I believe, and um, I've had many conversations with our outcomes director, that pre-imposed questions have a place but for the most part, they're not going to tell you much. I don't want to have the people coming at me after this. I'm just talking about my personal belief. They tell you things to a point, um, but you've got to dig a little deeper. And so programs where you can get feedback in a more meaningful way to how people are changing their thinking about this, what they're, they're thinking about their patient management approach. Those are the things that you can add to this by creating reflective questions. And sometimes we get into autopilot in creating these outcomes methodologies uh, just because of lack of time or it's just part of the moving forward process. So as much as you can take a moment and step back, and I say this so much, don't try to do it all at once. Don't say, okay, we've got to throw everything away and start over Um, because I think that gets people into this paralyzed state And they don't need to do that. Uh, An example is a colleague of mine was just creating an evaluation form for a program this week. And she said, I just want to let you know, I added in a question, a reflective one saying, think about a patient or a moment. I'm trying to remember what she said, but think about uh, a patient you might be treating and how this might apply to him or her and asking some deeper questions there just to kind of draw a little bit more out. Um, Or if you have activities like ECHO programs we've done Mm -hmm. where we did an ECHO program on a rare disease and these clinicians who felt so isolated from their colleagues because they were treating rare disease, we brought them together in this initiative that made them feel so good. And because they told us that, not because I thought it, that they bonded with one another and they created this community. And when they felt vulnerable and safe and able to share the soft outcomes that we got from that, the the things we were able to share with our supporter and each other is they went and took this information that they got from their colleagues and they did X, Y, and Z, put those in an outcomes report because I gather that a lot of the people we're giving these reports to would love to read that information more than, oh, we improved learning by, you know, 20% on this question. 
Because it's about the story. It's the story. Tell people a story. And it takes a certain practice, but it's not that complicated at the end of the day. Love that. That's really helpful. Thank you. So I guess, you know, looking to the future, what kind of programs do you see uh, mindfully designed education as having a kind of key role in? Is it mostly, uh, you know, health systems interventions or are there other areas where what you're talking about could be really valuable? You can do this in any form of education. I would not say it's more effective or less effective anywhere. There are ways you can take a simple webcast or 15-minute online publication and design it in a mindful way. And then obviously systems-based activities, you can get maybe a little bit more complex with it, but it's just moments of reflection, story. You can tell a story in a 15-minute written publication. Mm-hmm. Um, simple, or even just the question you ask is a mindfully designed question that you're asking the participants. So I don't believe that there's any activity that could not be designed mindfully. And Donna, if listeners want to talk with you and reach you, how can they do that? Uh, so I'm always available at MedIQ. So um, you can reach me at dgabriel at med, med-iq.com. And I'm always happy to um, talk. And then for those of you who are part of the Alliance, hopefully we can connect in July and I'll be there or virtually and would love to continue the conversation as well. And anything we haven't touched on that you feel is especially important when thinking about mindful education to support clinician well-being? The one thing I'll say is it's important that people don't don't get overwhelmed with this topic. So it's easy to look at this mountain of clinician burnout or moral injury and look and get paralyzed and not know what to do or think you have to have everything figured out and then you can do it. The way you move through that is by small steps that build upon each other over time. So just take a small step and then another and then another and eventually this just becomes part of your process. Like any other thing that you introduced to your organization, a new technology or a new process, you just have to take it one step at a time and eventually it just becomes natural. Small steps, slow breaths all the way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Donna, Gabriel, thank you so much for talking with us today on Right Medicine. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Although physicians don't like the term burnout, burnout is an exponentially higher problem in healthcare than in other professional settings or disciplines. Nurses in particular experienced unprecedented levels of exhaustion and stress during the height of the COVID pandemic in the USA and continue to do so here as well as in other countries like India, Greece and the United Kingdom. It makes sense to support clinician wellness or well-being and to use continuing education as a vehicle for doing so. But Donna reminds us that well-being isn't served well when we individualise burnout. Most clinicians are already resourceful and resilient people. If they could have MacGyvered their way out of burnout by now, they would have done so. Instead, 
well-being might be better served by acknowledging burnout as less of an individual problem than as a system-level problem of what Donna refers to as moral injury, which refers to a persistent situation in which clinicians are forced to make decisions or take actions that go against their moral code. A system-level approach to education that is less about presenting material on mindfulness than on delivering mindfully designed education. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.